Well, look, we're gonna have to talk about it. I have. I think we really don't. No, we do. That that's the whole point of the show is that we watch Star Trek and talk about it. So, I I know Richard that the Final Frontier is a very let's say it's a special movie. It's special. I mean, I, it, it was a wonderful movie. And I had an enjoyable time watching it. You know, I, I don't know how to approach this movie. It's be, and I and, and honestly, I don't think that I'm unique in that because I don't think that anyone involved in making the movie was exactly interested or, or knew how to approach making this movie well, as well. Here's the thing: this movie was directed by somebody who had no idea what Star Trek was, what Star Trek means, what the atmosphere of Star Trek is like, what the philosophical. Um, you know, milieu of Star Trek is like, which would be fine, except this movie was directed by the star of the series, and out of all of the people who are very directly identified with Star Trek, probably the most visible and recognizable one. So that alone is a problem. It's one thing when J.J. Abrams directs I don't know if I agree with that. Really? No. Because I... I I don't agree with that. I mean, you know, you, what you, you know, you you can say many things about the Final Frontier, right? It, it's 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 demonstrably not a great movie. It's tonally off in all sorts of ways. It doesn't treat a lot of the characters with a lot of respect, and it's strangely plotless. It doesn't ha- yeah. really have anything happening, and the movie doesn't have an ending. It just sort of stops. So there's all kinds of problems with the movie, but it's a bad Star Trek movie in a different way than other bad Star Trek movies because I think that you can tell watching this movie that William Shatner I don't think it's not that he under, he doesn't understand Star Trek. I think it's more that he has a very unique conception of what Star Trek is and what Star Trek can be. And he just goes all out for it. Now, the other thing to keep in mind, of course, is that he initially wrote the script for this story, but that is not what was filmed. Yeah, in a lot of ways, the... I'm good with I'm actually very happy with the premise of this film. There is a lot of potential in this story, I think. And in a And lot interestingly of- enough, the Enterprise crew trying to find God was Roddenberry, one of Roddenberry's initial conceptions for the motion picture. Well, it makes complete sense when you consider that you have you know, the, the, the goal of Star Trek is to go where no man has gone before, and the literal end point of that if you are in a universe that has God, then yes, finding God is the literal endpoint of any quest for knowledge, because, you know, by definition. And so, eventually, they do need to deal with the concept of, well, what is God, and can we physically go to him? And yet, I don't think that the... I, I, so again, the premise of this, the way that they go on, I like that they have this charismatic religious leader who is kind of the villain, but one who is not evil, and one, I like that they make uh, Cyborg very well-meaning for the whole thing, that they make him genuinely concerned for his people's safety, that he, you know, all of these things, he is an extremist, but he means the best. He does not mean to harm anybody. Um, I agree, I'm good with all of that, except at some point the movie just realize does not have a great ending in mind, or doesn't know what to do with any of these. I mean... 
Shatner is not a good director. No, Shatner is not a good director. He's he's adequate at best. And he doesn't get great performances out of anyone, which is, yeah. uh, you know, that's an important job of any director. I mean, William Shatner doesn't get a good performance out of William Shatner. I think this movie is possibly Shatner's worst performance as Kirk. Well, again, you what was the Nicholas Myers said? He would just make him do the take over and over and over again until he kind of exhausted, exhausted the hamminess and he started acting. Obviously, Shatner did not do that with himself yeah and i and i also think you know it's 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 funny because in 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 reading a little bit about the background for this movie and in in preparation for for recording this week you know a couple of things jumped out at me Uh, number one was that uh, william shatner was getting up at four o'clock every morning according to him uh, no no matter what time he went to sleep so he was probably exhausted right and and i think that shows the other interesting thing like he was doing like a lot of strength training and stuff because he uh, yeah you know I, I won't – it's funny because it seemed like he did work his ass off on this movie, like, which is why I say he's not a good director because I get the sense that this is the best movie that he could have made he, in a lot he, of ways. Yeah, he tried. He was on a six-month probation, and when the six-month probation was over, they said, okay, this isn't working out. We're going to have to let you go. I mean that was basically – you know, like yeah. that's if, if, if this was a job, that's what would have happened. I, I think the other, you know, sort of intriguing thing about about Cybok, you know, you, you didn't yeah. mention his name, but uh, Spock's half brother, and God, we will talk about that. But that he, Shatner originally got the idea for this story uh, from televangelists, and televangelists in, okay. in the eighties were a huge thing. Oh yeah. Cyborg was originally supposed to be a much more unlikable character. I would say this is when not only Televangelist, but Televangelist scandal. Oh, yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. Like the, the, we have to remember that it was considered a slightly seedy profession by this point. Yeah, this was this movie was, was filmed in 88 and released in 89. So this was pretty much at the height of the Televangelist uh, scandals. And I can kind of... I can kind of yeah. understand why they changed Cyborg's character because I think that this movie as awful as it is, would have been almost unwatchable if Cybok were a a terrible character. You know, yeah. if, if he had been, you know, a, a sleazy sort of, sort of, you know, a televangelist who was making up things to get somebody to do something for him and was sort of like an asshole and was mean to people, I think the movie would have been almost unwatchable. Yeah. As and it- as it is, I think Cybok is... The I don't want to say the best part of the movie, but the least bad part, let's say. Well, out of everybody, I mean, he is giving the actor playing him is giving one of the most one of the best performances in the movie, I will say. And I think it is a very interesting angle to the character again to make him good but misguided. It it adds a much richer complexity to him as a as a villain when you understand that he is doing everything because he believes it's the right thing to do and you know he recognizes completely that he is stealing a starship that he is you know frauding you know the federation etc etc but again when he's, he's fighting the he immediately you know says to stricken with grief you know i didn't want there to be bloodshed you know anytime somebody is in danger of getting hurt he gets very upset and you know I like that he's not duping his followers, but that he genuinely believes he is giving them enlightenment. And to a degree, he is giving them enlightenment, or he is helping them deal with their pain in a way that they never have. The scene with McCoy's father, he is finally dealing with the death of his father in a way that he has not been able to. 
Yeah, but I mean, whether I, again, whether what, the ends, Cybox ends may or may not be bad or good, but at the end, at the same time, he's not. I he's not a malicious character, and we have seen a lot of malicious characters. I think I think as portrayed, Cybox is an okay guy, but and I think it's interesting. You know, we have to talk about him being a Vulcan as well because that's extremely important to the movie. I don't know if it's super well thought out, but it's there and we have, you know, it's, it's, it's yeah. something that I think is going to be interesting to talk about, but it's, you know, his, his, his powers of, of forgiveness or whatever healing pain are very ill-defined. I think at first where, you know, when he's the very beginning of the movie, yeah, you, you know, you're not sure if you're even watching a Star Trek movie. Yeah. I, you, I you thought I had the wrong movie for a few minutes. You don't or... know what's going on. It, it feels very, it feels very late 80s fantasy in a way. Well, I want to say the movie seems equal parts Gilligan's Island and Dune. Like, that's... You've never seen Dune. I'm going to make... We're going to watch it at some point. I think a lot of this movie visually will make a little more sense, or at least tonally, because that's the whole science fantasy mysticism thing. Like, the that is very Dune. You can tell that is where he's going with this. And I, and I will say, I think the beginning of the movie, while it doesn't make, you know, a ton of sense as a Star Trek movie, I think it is interesting. And oh, I think, it's a... I think the movie starts out well, you know, you have this, this guy that's very thin and looks very sick, uh, in the desert, uh, digging holes for, for no reason that we can really determine scavenging. And, uh, there's a mysterious man in a hood, you know, riding up on a horse where to get the horse. I don't know. But, then he comes and he heals his pain and he's revealed that he's a Vulcan. And you're like, oh, this is this is really interesting. And I think... As a scene of imagery, it's a very good scene. Yeah. And what I find interesting about that is is I think we're supposed to believe that Cybok is using the mind meld or, or some other sort of Vulcan, you know, mental uh, discipline to do this. And later on in the movie, especially in that scene with, with McCoy... And with Spock and Kirk, where he's healing their pain, and, and you can probably hear my my quotes in my voice, yeah. <laughs> uh, it, it's kind of revealed to be complete bullshit. And I, I don't know if we're supposed to take away from that that he is some sort of like, I don't know, like a, a, a telepathic psychologist? Like, I, what I, is that, he that even doing? That is genuinely doing? what I, I guess I thought that it would be, because mind melds in general are not... You know, the, whenever Spock, Spock performs a mind meld, it's specifically for information or specifically for communication. Um, those are pretty much the two main reasons that he ever mind melds in the series, because he needs to communicate with a, an entity that cannot communicate with him for whatever reason. The, the Horta, Horta. Is, the, is the textbook example of this. And for someone like Spock, that makes complete sense, because... Emotions are not going to be as on his radar, Radar are not going to be as interesting to him. Somebody who does have the power of the mind meld but is deeply invested in emotions is going to not use the most useful or most logical memory but is going to go to the memory of the deepest pain, of the deepest hurt, of the deepest um, intense emotionality. And so... I, I think the phrase telepathic psychologist is kind of the best way that you can describe his intentions. I picture him as kind of a new age guru who is able to, he uses his mind meld in order to bring, you know, memories that his subjects have repressed and he's able to use his psychologist skills 
because I would say it's it's half mystical power, half his own charisma, his own you know thing with that. I mean, I guess, but yeah. that bringing that out is one thing. Well, and then, here's the thing: in concept, it's interesting. In execution, it doesn't really go anywhere beyond well that's i mean you can't tell to what degree it's brainwashing and can't tell to what degree it's because i think i think well i think it's very explicitly not supposed to be brainwashing yeah i think that you know his followers are supposed to be following him of their own free will just because he allowed them to 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 let go of their pain okay but but the the problem i have with it is that number one it it totally it trivializes the practice of psychotherapy because yeah. that's not how people work, right? Well, again, and I think it's an incompetent execution. You know, you don't have one deep pain and then you could go, okay, well, I'm all right now. It's like, it doesn't work like that. But that's how Hollywood has always treated therapy, really. Uh, yeah, but fair. but my other my other problem with that, and, you know, I could accept that as, as a movie. Yeah. My other problem with it is I have no idea how... He actually lets them let go of their pain. There is no explanation for that whatsoever. And McCoy sees his dying father. Cybok walks over to him and is like, it's okay. It's okay. And then suddenly everything's fine and McCoy's all happy again. You're like, what just happened? Again, I think that's a trivialization of the therapy process that is just very common in Hollywood. You get the... There is a very old school, almost Freudian conception of therapy where you have your trauma in your life and this is something that you have repressed and that you are not able to deal with and that in – you know, the process of therapy takes years because it takes you that long to figure out what it is. But once you finally dig deep enough and figure out what it is, then you have it in the air and you realize that, no, I did do my best decision at that point. You know, in this case – McCoy's torturing himself over euthanizing his father when uh, six months later they had a cure for it. And this is saying I can. Which, by the way, is ridiculous. Well, yes. Um, Again, it's a very terrible execution of it. It's not a well done movie. I can accept that. I can accept a movie which would have a section in which somebody is able to use the psychic power to get to that trauma quickly to bring it out into the open and to be the one who finally says you know no you did your best and you're okay and uh, you're forgiven i mean that's that is what a cyborg could do he doesn't do this in this movie because i don't think the nuances of that kind of thing are understood by shatner or the writer but i think that was the intention with him again i can see this movie i see there are two movies here there is the Movie as intended, which I think is a genuinely powerful, genuinely interesting, genuinely compelling, and genuinely logical endpoint for this series to go in. There is the movie as filmed, which is a goddamn mess. Yeah, yeah. And I I agree with you. I mean, I I, I think that if someone had come in and and completely rewritten the script because it Give it to a good director and a good script writer. Um. The, the the actual bones of the story are fine, and, yeah. and the actual conception of the Cybok character yeah. is fine. I probably would not have made him Spock's half-brother that had never been mentioned before. I think that's absolutely ridiculous and contradicts everything that we've seen in the series from, from Spock's upbringing, you know, from, from yesteryear in the animated oh, yeah. series to Journey to Babel. I mean, it, it's, it's complete bullshit. I mean, I just have to say that, like, 
it's it's one of those things as as a as a Trek fan that I'm just kind of like ah. It's it, one of those things you could have made him a cousin without changing the intent to have somebody that. Because I mean, the intent is to obviously have somebody that Spock was extremely close to as a child that has broken with him so much that he can't even talk about this. I mean, you know, Vulcan, but, Vulcans are very long-lived. Have him be an uncle. I mean, whatever. You know, like... Have, it, it, it could be as simple as his best friend in school. It, yeah. You have... You know, put it this way. Spock has been very explicitly always been a number two. Again, the line that Eve Keeler has in City on the Edge of Forever, Um, you know, you are at his side where you've always been. You know, anytime... This concept of Spock having his own ship is brought up. He says, no, I'm much happier being a second in command. Cybok could have been the kid that, you know, Spock was always idolized and was always following. You know, he was the a Vulcan who was emotional, and that was somebody that a young Spock was able to connect to because as a human, he had emotions, and he needed somebody who was fully Vulcan, who was a good Vulcan role model for him, but who had also mastered the emotions. And at some point... You know, Cybok got too crazy with this. Well, I think the implication with Cybok is that he rejected that later. I mean, he wasn't he wasn't running around crying when he was five years old. I mean, that just evolved, whatever we've seen of Vulcan society that would just not oh, be yeah. acceptable, right? Oh yeah, you know, and that's not what I'm saying. I'm saying either way, he he was probably a Vulcan who was while they were all getting their early, you know, scholarly interests. You know, this area of Vulcan mysticism was what Cybok decided he was most interested in. And I'm sure he started off as academic study of this religious tradition or, you know, whatever. And then eventually began to actually believe it again the way that uh, Shakari is, you know, talked about is as, you know, a mythical paradise, probably more of a symbolic paradise to the Vulcans or anything like that. Um He's the one who's saying, no, this is actually real and we can go there. That's the crazy part. And I think, you know, I think the other thing that, that's problematic with the Cybok character is, you know, you've always talked about how you would like to see a Vulcan that is emotional. And, you know, Vulcans have always been portrayed. They've always talked about Vulcan emotions as extremely volatile. You know, they, they were very angry people and very violent and they had extreme problems controlling their emotions. Yeah. And we finally meet a Vulcan that has completely rejected the teachings of Serac and has become emotional and has allowed himself to feel all these emotions and, 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 and be a, you know, pure Vulcan or whatever you want to call it. And he's kind of just a happy dude. And yeah, he doesn't seem to have any cares, doesn't really seem to get angry, you know, doesn't really seem to be a bad guy. He gets and upset I, and nervous when his plan isn't going 100% right, which is understandable. But yeah, he, he acts like any normal person, really, in a lot of ways. Right, but but I think that that completely yeah. contradicts what we've heard about Vulcans and completely undercuts their entire philosophy. Because... If this is what a Vulcan who embraces emotion looks like, I don't think it's that bad. Yeah, I, I mean, I think I said on an early episode, Vulcans are 16-year-olds with nukes. Like, this guy needs to be having mood swings. He needs to be fully invested in whatever emotion he is feeling at an, any moment. So at that time when he says, you know, I wanted there to be no bloodshed, he is going to not be as calm about it. He is going to be a fury of terror, of grief, of anger of panic i mean he is going to be a crazy animal at that moment if emotions are 
that strong to him. Other, as it seems, he's able to master them as anybody who ha- who has good self control can have. Yeah, and 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 let's think about this in conjunction with the the, the previous movies that we've just seen, right? Yeah. Star Trek two, three, and four, which were a trilogy about primarily about Spock. And him coming to terms with his human half, you know, having his body and his katra melded again, and then sort of learning how to let himself be a little more loose. And there's that great line in Star Trek Four where he's going to estimate to get back and stuff like yeah. that. Well, look at uh, what's, what's her name? Um, Savick. Yeah, look at Savick, who I've said, you know, she's a Vulcan who has emotion. She cries at Spock's death. She doesn't go crazy but she expresses grief over david's death you know the her saying to kirk you know your son saved all of us is a very emotional response in a way she is directly soothing kirk's emotions about the event rather than his logic well that's what i'm saying i mean i, I yeah, think i think that was you know, an example that was an excellent example cut, of evoking with emotion cut all of the god stuff out and, and and you know cut all the nimbus 3 stuff out and cut the yosemite stuff out because what the fuck is that and you know, just have this movie be an explicit, like, sort of wrap-up of that and say, okay, well, well, Spock is a character that we all love, and here he is, and, you know, he's become integrated again, and he's a little more loose now, and he, he mm-hmm. still is a Vulcan, and he still believes in Vulcan logic, but he's allowing himself to, to not feel emotion, but to understand emotion. Sometimes it's logical to show emotion is kind of the lesson that he learned at the end, I would say. I would say not logical to show emotion, but, but logical to... Abandon logic To understand times. emotion and to sort of let himself be a little more loose right and what i take away from from that is this movie should have been sort of a movie about here's a vulcan who has completely gone the opposite way and i think it could have been a nice counterpoint and i also think that if they had been sort of you know writing a, a more decent script this could have been the movie that really really hit home that spock was making the correct choice yeah in other words the past three movies have shown why his logic needs to be tempered with emotion. This could say, by the way, his emotion, his emotions need to be tempered with logic. Yeah. Because again, to have, you know, as it is when, you know, the Federation starts attacking and, you know, I completely forget that Cybok. Um, why are they all S names? I mean, is that a they're thing? they're not? No, I, they're all the same name to me. We got Savik, we got Sarek, we've got Spock, we've got Cybok. They're the same goddamn name. Hey, you all just you just remembered them all. I know, but I don't know who was which in that <laughs> thing. Um, Spock was played by well, Kirstie Alley, racist. right? Uh, yeah, I know. I'm a racist person against Vulcans. Um, when Cybok says, you know, they they they've you know, they're attacking, I didn't want any bloodshed, you know, he is not consumed by emotion because his self-control says, all right, I need to be going in calm and decisive, and what he does when he goes in and, and you know, what he ends up doing is is the calm, rational approach, and that turns out to be the one that causes, that stops any fighting. It is the right approach. You know, you you have sometimes emotion does need to be tempered by logic. They sh- Cybok is already there, yeah. and... I think he needs to be a little more mad. Yeah, no, I would agree with that. Absolutely. Let's move away from Cybok for a minute because, uh, you know, we. I think that the tone of the movie in general is a problem. You know, leaving aside the Cybok stuff, and that definitely is a problem. The, it's It's... 
The movie starts really strangely because yeah. I think it's set up to be a much more serious movie than it turns out to be. The subject matter is incredibly serious. They're looking for God, right? Yeah. Um, and they meet the devil or something at the end, but whatever. Uh, and then immediately after the opening scene, we are presented with uh, the Three Stooges in Yosemite National Park. And why it's a national park in the future when Earth has part of a federation of planets, I don't know. But let's just leave that aside. Um you know, and and here is a, an action figure Kirk climbing El Capitan because he's yeah. sixty and he can do that. Um, here's Spock with some some boots. Uh, Spock and boots. <laughs> Spock and boots. I, I mean, did and, those come with the toy? Because yeah, I don't know what that's about. Um, here's McCoy muttering to himself for no reason, like a crazy old man looking through his viewmaster. Here's them sitting around a campfire, Kirk and McCoy getting drunk and, and Spock calling marshmallows marshmallows. What, what was that? You know, I got the scene. I got almost the sense that that entire scene was just improv and it was just McCoy, uh, you know, Shatner. Oh no, that was written. That was written. Because it would be one thing if Shatner, Nimoy, and, you know, DeForest Kelly all wanted to go on a camping trip together, you know, and they'd been planning this, and they figured out a way that they could get the studio to pay for it. And fun fact, some marshmallow company actually sold that marshmallow container in 1989. Was that a container or was that a handheld, like, replicator? No, that was supposed to be a container. So he literally kept a couple of marshmallows in that container when he could have gotten a bag? I don't know. Maybe it was, like, a nanite factory and it was it was making, like, tens of thousands of marshmallows. That would be wonderful. I yeah. could go for that. Um, but this is but this is the problem, right? Is that the movie is set up to be, hey, it's, we're funny and we're all having a good yeah. time and this is another comedy like The Voyage Home. But didn't you like The Voyage Home? And it's like... Yeah, I like The Voyage Home a lot because The Voyage Home, I'm laughing with the characters. I'm not laughing at the characters. And my problem with The Final Frontier is that more often than not, you are supposed to laugh at the characters. Well, that's the thing. And that that shows a fundamental disrespect for them. Number one, let let me put it this way. The scene where they have Scotty says, well, I know the ship like the back of my hand. Mm. And then he walks right into a thing and he faints. And then I'm like... Oh, ha ha ha, Prattfall. And then the next he has like this major like injury on his head and there's a medical team and it was like, oh, he was actually seriously hurt like enough to be unconscious. Yeah, he's like, like he he like has a concussion, he's in a coma. Like but no, yeah, it's, like, but, that, but, no it's, but no, it's funny. And that worried me. Yeah, like I retroactively felt very bad for laughing at Scotty ramming into the support strut because oh my god, he's really old and he's really hurt. Like this is serious. Yeah, no, absolutely. No, I mean, and there's movie there, there's there's scenes like that throughout the movie. The fan dance. Can we talk? Do we have to talk about the fan dance? Because like we we can talk about the fan dance. I mean, I'm still glad that we acknowledge that Nichelle Nichols still looks banging at her age, but at the same time, like it reminds me of just I read an interview with Gary Fisher talking about Return of the Jedi, and you know she signed on the second that the script was you know talked about because you know obvious but she said when she saw the costume with the chain mail bikini she was extremely sad and disappointed and she said that's when i knew what this movie was like i knew that this was just a very different tone and one that i didn't like like i knew they were going to take this character in a very direction that it was not it should not have been yeah that's kind of how i feel like that they did to Yahura in giving her the sexy fan. It's like, it's it's interesting. It's because yeah. I, I I I attended the the big Las Vegas Star Trek convention a few weeks ago, and 
someone asked N- Nichelle Nichols when she was on stage about that scene. Yeah. And, you know, Nichelle Nichols is not, she, she's not. Uh, uh, she's in her 80s. She's in her 80s, right? She, she doesn't have dementia, but she's just a little not with she's it as much <laughs> as she used to be. And she was kind of slow on, on, on answering a lot of these questions. I think she's a little hard of hearing, too. I mean, yeah. she still looks great and she's still wonderful and funny and charming and everything. And you're also asking her about stuff she did 30 years ago. You know? <laughs> yeah. So let's face it. You know? That doesn't help either. Um, but you know, it was, someone asked her about the fan dance scene and, and if she had a problem with it and her answer was interesting because yeah. she basically said, well, no, I didn't have a problem with it because that wasn't what Uhura was. And I thought it was great that she got to do that because she had a lot of other stuff to do that wasn't sexual at all. That's actually a very and I fair said, point. I said, okay, that that's fair. I can see that at the same time. And I don't want to, you know, discount her opinion at all, but no. I don't I don't have a, a huge problem with the scene. I think it's fine, but you know, dramatically it makes no sense. It it kind of brings the movie to a weird halt for about <laughs> two minutes. There's a lot of bits like that, but anyway. It it's it's ill conceived because it's another abrupt tonal shift in a movie that has tons of abrupt tonal shifts that are not done well. And I don't have a problem with movies that have abrupt tonal shifts. Oh, yeah. I like movies sometimes that do that, that sort of subvert your expectations that way. But my problem with this, and, and the fan dance scene is a perfect example, is just that I don't think that anybody, least of all William Shatner, had a grip on what exactly they were doing and the, the 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 tone of the movie just veered wildly from scene to scene which didn't even feel i mean did did the beginning of the of the movie and then the yosemite scenes and then the very end with the god scenes it's like you're watching three completely yeah. different movies that were edited together by someone who was blind. And then there's that whole Klingon bit like the, it, it's one of those movies that there are like a bunch of side plots that are just kind of in the same movie rather than relating to each other. I had only seen this movie once before in my life, and I obviously had never watched it again because why yeah. would you? And I had completely forgotten that there were Klingons in it. Well, let me put it this way. Let's remember. Let's look in uh, Search for Spock, which has a Klingon that's kind of tangential to the main story of what's going on. The main story of Search for Spock is they're going to a planet and then they're coming back with Spock's body. This is they're going to the god planet and they're coming back. In both cases, a Klingon happens to be harassing them. And yet, what the Klingon and what Christopher Lloyd's Klingon is doing is, number one, directly related to the quest. In other words, he's looking for the Genesis device. He's interested in the Genesis planet. And so he and Kirk converging on the same planet is just, you know, it's, 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 two people colliding at the same point um it's he's directly interested in the fallout of something that kirk directly did this klingon is bored of hitting earth probes and so he decides because he hears that kirk is in the neighborhood he's gonna follow kirk and that that was also weird because that scene was interesting because the first time you see the klingons they're bored and they're firing on earth probes and i think that was supposed to be funny yeah, and I was going to say... Um, and I was like, Klingons do a lot of things well, but humor is not really one of them. No. Klingons I, are not funny. I'm sorry. No. I, I, it frankly would... I would assume that would be closer to an act of war, number one. Well, it's an old probe. It's from like the 20th century. I mean, who cares? But... Yeah, I mean, either way, it's... Obviously, they didn't need it to find aliens because... Humans have found plenty of aliens in the 23rd century in the Star Trek universe. Yeah. Still, I mean, it 
then then there's the other question of is th- what what is this Klingon's job that he's just like I always, dicking around know, space? Like it's funny, you know. This is kind of a side point, but but I always got the impression that Klingons sort of like were more like pirates, where they just sort of like fair. went around and did shit. And then every once in a while, they got orders. Like it I was, mean, I get the sense that this is like a rich kid with a fancy spaceship. Like you're you supposed know? to find your own glory, yeah. or whatever. You know, it um, seems like he is a twenty year old cocky captain. You know, yeah, absolutely. And and I mean that is fine, but. He doesn't really add anything to the end of the... Doesn't add anything to the movie whatsoever. Um, I, don't, I don't know why they're in the movie. The entirety of the these Enterprise not being up to code goes nowhere. No, absolutely. No, I, I mean, they, they're, they're on nothing, nothing goes wrong on the ship that, you know, a laser blast doesn't do in other episodes. Um, at the end, they only seem to need the Klingon ship because the transporter is so malfunctioned that you know they can't get kirk back up to the normal to the enterprise but if there were no klingons they would could remove that problem easily and, and have, it does give the klingon ambassador to nimbus 3 something to do no it gives the yeah but we never see him doing it here's the thing the, the ambassador to nimbus is this old drunk who's been who's out to sea he used to be this brilliant commander he used to be you know they i think they say that he was such a great general that, you know, in the Federation you studied him um, because he was he's, – his tactics are that brilliant. And, you know, he's gotten at the point – he's obviously an alcoholic. He's drinking the entire time. He's just – you know, he's been put to this planet because – you know. And then they're saying, you know, this is your moment. You know, you were a great general. You know, convince this Klingon to back off. And that all happens off screen. I wanted to see this guy pull his shit together and be this strong Klingon general. And that would have been an awesome scene. I don't think it would have been. I think it could have been. And I'll give you a very basic reason why not. Why? We don't get a sense of him as a person. Well, that's... But let me put it this way. Give it to a good director. Give it to a good writer. give, Give this character a character. And yes, that speech would be an awesome scene. Yeah, probably. Ex- but I mean, yeah, you, you, you don't make the one choice. You know, you, there, there are a dozen other choices that you didn't make to get to there anyway. Yeah, it's well, the movie makes all the wrong choices, basically. Yeah, this is the worst execution of this particular concept that could be. I think. Well, let's go back to the fan dance because we sort of left that on the table. Um, you know, I, I I have problems with that. I think for for two reasons. One is that it it is it's sexist. It's sexist from Uhura, but I also think it's sexist for the guys. It, 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 and it says something. So these are supposed to be Cybok's people, right? Like that he... Cybok, yeah. Yeah. So they are all, you know, they are all Cybok's people, and they are all committed to this quest for God and this mission. And the second there's something like a naked lady, they all turn into cartoon wolves and they get destroyed. Right. Like... Yeah, like I, I, I have trouble believing that every single one of them is that stupid and that horny. Yeah, I mean because because I think that's maybe that Shatner's sense of sexuality. I don't know. I mean, we could speculate all day, but you know, I think what 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 that scene represents, and I think what that scene is a perfect example of, is the lack of maturity in this movie. Yeah, and that's and that's what I think fundamentally. The, the the most basic problem with the movie is 
that it just has a lack of maturity. Well, here's the thing. It, and it doesn't even seem to... If this had been a raunchy space comedy, this would be very in place there. Like, along with, by the way, the three-boobed cat lady. Yeah. <sighs> um, that that happened, yeah. If, if, if Shatner had wanted to make a non-Star Trek raunchy space comedy... And yes, it has to do with the search for God, but then it's going to be in this very seedy and, you know, sexy thing. That would be one thing. You could make, you can make a funny sex comedy. You can make a funny space sex comedy. Uh, That's not one that fits with the Star Trek tone. It it just doesn't, Star Trek doesn't do humor in that way. However many problems we've seen with the views towards women in the series... I think they very very clearly were of the time type of issues um again yeah they- i don't I don't think that they're you know i mean maybe I'm wrong, but i I'm not remembering a female character in the original series or any of the other original series movies that not only objectified herself but made the decision to objectify herself in the way that Uhura did. Yeah, I'm trying to honestly think. I mean, and I mean that's, that's. I guess there were some. You know, there are certainly examples of women being seductive. Yeah, I mean, you can say that that's empowering, I guess, and you can say that it's not. But mm. at the end of the day, it doesn't fit with the tone of Star Trek, and it doesn't really add anything to the movie except a scene where we're supposed to find it amusing that they get into Paradise City by turning Star Trek into a sex comedy for two minutes. Well, let me let me put it this way. You, before we saw the movie, you said something to me like, oh, you're going to enjoy the fan dance scene. And I pictured it would be something like the cantina scene where you have just... I figured there would be an extended sequence where there was a sexy alien, maybe even our, an Orion, doing a fan dance for just way too long and just taking up way too much time of the movie. The last thing I pictured was that at some point they were going to need to distract a bunch of soldiers or somehow capture or somehow steal their horses. And the way they did do that was for Ohura to strip into her bikini and do a fan dance to get them all sexy and lure them away. Like, that was not where I thought that they would take that. Let me and I, I don't even think she was wearing a bikini, honestly. I think she was supposed to be nude. Really? Well, I know she was covering herself very strategically with those fans. I watched the I had watched it with the subtitles because of the Klingon and I was too lazy to, you know, take it off and on between. Uh, sure. And like, I don't know, just also the comments of the soldier was very like hubba hubba. She's naked. Oh, my God. Like, and it was a little like, I don't know. I just felt uncomfortable watching the scene just because just like I didn't want to see a three breasted cat lady in a. Star Trek movie, I didn't necessarily want to see your her doing a fan dance. The, the, all of these things add up to, to one thing, I think, and that is that this movie is a parody of Star Trek, I think, in a lot of ways. Uh, yeah, and and again, you couldn't have made a parody Star Trek movie. This I don't even think it works as a parody Star Trek movie because half of the stuff in this is, does not even fit with the original series. You know what I mean? Like... If you wanted to make a raunchy Star Trek parody, you would have done it very differently. How? Well, number one, you wouldn't have made it about the quest for God. You would, you know, like, I, I, it would just be, I could see a sexy version of Star Trek in which a sexy virus gets on the ship and everyone becomes really sexy. That was called The Naked Time. Yeah, do, a, do, do, a, do an R-rated version of The Naked Time. 
That that's how you do a softcore Star Trek parody. There you go. It's super easy. I would not want to see that. No one would want to see that. I think we need to talk about God. Yeah, I was just about to say we should probably move on to the ending. Here's the thing. Um, philosophically, where I think this sh- they wanted to go with this or where this ought to have gone. Um, again, if you have – if your mission is, on a, is a search for knowledge, uh, if there is a universe with God – in existence, if God exists, then the search for knowledge ends with an understanding of God. That's just the way that knowledge would be orienta- oriented in that universe. Sure. Um, just as morality would be centered around God as well. So if you have the opportunity to find God, yes, that's a very logical place for the Enterprise to go. At the same time, for very many reasons, least of all, this shows philosophical angle, least of all, the fact that a movie is never going to definitively show God in a way that everybody is going to be happy about. You know, it, it, because of all of these reasons, um, this quest for God has to fail. And there is a Zen Cohen, if you meet the Buddha in the road, kill him. Essentially, if you Well, that's can, depressing. No, it's essentially if you can put your... If you, can, if you find something which looks like enlightenment, enlightenment is so ineffable, ineffable that if you can see it and define it, it's a false enlightenment. Okay. So in other words... A god that you can that's on a planet in the center of the universe that you can go to is necessarily a false god, and therefore it could end with the moral that looking for this is incorrect. You know, we have to determine our own morality, have to determine our own you know, it could have ended in a very optimistic manner. Kind of like how Babylon five gets its, you know, we have to transcend this war because we need to find our own destiny. Now it's our turn. I agree with you, but I, I mean that, I will I will defend this movie a little bit. Yeah. Because I I think that's kind of where it was well, trying the, to go. And yeah, and I especially agree. especially with the line, what does God need with a starship? I mean Well that's I, it. They realize that no, this God is actually a an evil alien, a demon, whatever it is. I I've read it's supposed to actually be the devil. I don't, you know, but in some, and that's, and that's a problem with the movie, right? Is that the end of the, the movie is set up as this sort of like quest movie. And, uh, reminds me, they originally wanted Sean Connery to play Cybok. Um, but he was busy with, uh, Indiana Jones and last crusade. Better choice. (laughs) Yeah. Um, that, the, the the movie is set up as a as a quest movie. Yeah. They they find the, the object of their quest. Now let's leave, by the way, aside. Why is how how is this creature letting people know he's at the center of the universe? How did he get there? Like anyway, but whatever, it doesn't matter. <laughs> I mean it's a planet at the center of the I've galaxy. given up it's it's less that it doesn't matter and it's more it's a fruitless quest to ask because they didn't How how did they get to the center of the galaxy in an hour? Why is there a, bar- a barrier at the center of the galaxy? All Why did these... people think that they couldn't get through the barrier if they obviously can easily? Because they didn't have Star Trek V, the, the Final Frontier camera crew there filming them. I know. like that. <laughs> That's the reason why. Um, you know, that, that the end of the movie it, it just ends. Like, there's no, there's no actual ending. There's no resolution to what they were trying to look for. We never get a clear sense of who this person was, this evil alien that was starting to zap them for no reason. Cybok, I guess, 
sacrifices himself yeah. at the end of the movie, which because he realizes that he has done falsely. And again, I think that's an in character moment for him. If we have determined that his goal is genuinely to help people towards enlightenment, to find God, and then when he finds out that he's not only not found God, but put people in extreme danger and possibly the galaxy in danger if this thing gets a starship. It, I, I, I buy his sacrifice. I really don't. I, you know, I, I just... it it. But I would have bought his sacrifice better if he'd been able to actually talk down the God being, and I think that would be more interesting. Well, I think it would have been more like Star Trek. That's what least. I'm saying. I don't... I mean, and I also think the problem with Cyborg sacrificing himself is that I don't really get a clear sense of why he's doing it. And I don't really get a clear sense of the rest of them down there with Cyborg, Kirk, Spock, and, and I think McCoy was down there too, wasn't he? Yeah. Why they're not, they don't seem to be taking this seriously at all. I mean, they that that's kind of the other problem with the ending is that especially Shatner seems to know haha we're on a sound stage and this isn't real like well, like this, you, this is a really this, um, this is a really bad performance from Shatner well let me put it this way Have, did you watch what I watched during that entire sequence was Spock's facial expressions and he w- had the same exact unimpressed and slightly disgusted facial expression that I did during this entire sequence yeah. like yeah you could tell that Spock is very unimpressed by the light show a little underwhelmed and pissed that he's had to deal with this shit you know like right right and I, I you know and and I the end of the movie I don't know if there's any sort of like thematic because the problem is like I think we talk a lot about these movies and a lot about Star Trek in terms of themes and you know how things are related to each other and I know that Wrath of Khan like all of the theme, all of the actions of the movie sort of went into the central theme of, of, of aging and, and, and nostalgia and things like that. And, uh, you know, we really, I think, you know, we're sort of hedging around the end of the movie just because there's no real way to hang a conversation on any sort of theme because this movie has none. I mean, let me, let me put it. And the end yeah. of the movie is just complete nonsense. It's just the three of them singing row, row, row your boat and ending. Uh, and we're all buddies, you know, which was not, I mean, the character arc between the three char- between Spock, McCoy, and, uh, and, and Kirk, I like that the entire time. That's actually one of the few bits of the movies that I, g- movie that I genuinely like, that it finally treats, we've had so many treatments of Spock and Kirk, this, I think, finally resolves the McCoy and Spock dynamic. I think this finally... Yeah, brings, I can see that. This is the movie, I think, where they finish those... Like, they, they dealt with most of that in the last movie. I think this is just tying up the loose ends between them and, and acknowledging that, no, we're not both Kirk's best friend. The three of us are a unit. And I liked that. Um, thing, I mean, there have been so many Star Trek... And I like, and you know, that's the problem, right? Is that I think the, the, um, the pain scene with the three of them and Cybok, they, they all decide, you know, not to go with Cybok, right? And they, because they're all sticking together. And that's actually, I mean, I think that that's one of the nicest moments of the movie and one of the only nice moments of the movie. Cybok even says at one point, you know, it, the, because he says, because the three of them are so strong together on a unit, I have to do something very different here. And, you know, Bones is all ready to go and, you know, you know, uh, Kirk refuses to go through this mind melt process. Sure. So he is definitely staying on his own side. You know, McCoy seems about ready to go when Spock says, you know, well, look, even though I'm, I know this is my pain. I, I have a lot of pain about the fact that, but at this point I've dealt with this. 
I understand this pain is part of who I am and you know, similar to what Kirk says, you know, I'm not going to, I don't want to get rid of this because that's going to fundamentally change who I am. Yeah. And that, you know, makes McCoy says, you know, yeah, you're right. I'm going to go with the two guys who have always steered me right. And that's a on nice moment. One. Yeah. That is a nice that's moment. That's wonderful. But I, I, you know, I guess my point is that, uh, you know, and especially the beginning of the movie with the three of them and the end of the movie with the three of them, this is a movie in a lot of ways about threes i think right because yeah. you've got nimbus three it's a romulan klingon you know federation planet it's kirk spock and mccoy um if you even want to go into sort of some judeo-christian thing trinity, trinity and things like that um in a lot of ways again this movie is about threes but the problem i have with it is at the very end of the movie cybox sacrifices himself and then the three of them are left on the planet and then the two of them are beamed up and kirk is left there alone mm-hmm I think the movie could have been a lot stronger again if, you know, give that alien creature some form of anything, really. Make it make it make any sense at all and have the three of them have to sort of defeat it in some way. Yeah. Instead, what we get is Spock and McCoy beaming back up to the Enterprise to leave Kirk down there alone to, to fight, fight rocks or whatever. To and... climb the rock again to bookend the climbing the scene at the beginning oh my god it's a i mean i, and, I could then, i could see like and then hanging sh- up guns that he pulled out earlier like that that's what the ending was but in a terrible way and then they shoot god they shoot the thing like they just shit like did they just kill it like what is going on it, <laughs> it just makes no sense yeah we don't it could have really and the thing is star trek has a built-in method of dealing with ambiguity or philosophical complexity in that how many times in that it's particular Star Trek has a built-in method of dealing with ambiguity or unanswered questions in that it's very well within the tone of the show to have Spock, McCoy, and Kirk sitting on the bridge talking about the events of what just happened. So they could, Spock could say, well, it's my theory that that was a creature who's so evil that he'd been exiled to you know, the center of the universe and, you know, he must have been trying for years to go and McCoy could say, you know, how like Satan to be, you know, banished, you know, and... And how cool would it have been to, like, link that to, like, the magics of Megas 2 and have it be a a Megas 2-ian or whatever. You know, I mean, there's there's any number of ways you can do that and then you have... So then you have the thing where, you know, maybe that is where we got all of our mythology about, you know, the fall and paradise and, you know the devil and all of that but you know one thing we know is that you know the answers aren't at the same turn of the universe but they're out there somewhere and we are gonna have a star trek in order to find them you know yeah and i mean the philosophical the ending bi- of this movie is that knowledge does not have an end point that it is a an unfinishable quest this movie has a lot of Buddhist resonances that Shatner is completely unaware of, that the writer is completely unaware of. And if – I mean this whole life is but a dream motif that they keep repeating. If this had been an explicitly Buddhist movie, that would have been a perfect thing to deal with. The Well, I, I think it's weird because, I mean, I know you're saying a lot about Buddhism, but but I, I, I take almost the opposite tack. I, I think it's a very cynical movie, and I, and I think – it's 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 cynical because it treats the quest for knowledge as something which basically has 
no value or meaning. Cybok's quest is meaningless and he sacrifices himself for no reason. And, you know, Nimbus 3, I mean, we haven't really talked about Nimbus 3 and I'm curious to get your thoughts on it because one of the other reasons I think the movie is so cynical is because you know, Nimbus three is, is the par- the planet of peace and it's called paradise city and you know, ha ha ha. And it's this horrible desert planet. The, you know, the, the three ambassadors from, from, from the Romulan empire, the Klingon empire and the Federation are washed up drunks. And this is really just not consistent with what we have come to know about the Federation. See, I'm, I'm, so that is my question. What is the status of Klingon and Romulan and Federation to each other at this point? I know eventually, obviously, the Klingons become a Federation ally or a Federation member. Or Federation ally. They become yeah. a Federation ally eventually. And I think it is actually well within the... I, I, I buy the idea of a bunch of... A, 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 an enterprising Klingon, an enterprising Earth man, and an Earth... And, you know, an enterprising Romulan all, you know, having a conversation and saying, you know, the three of us could pool our resources together and make a lot of money. And, you know, that would be a really interesting hook for it. And, you know, I can see them trying to, you know, get this neutral zone territory. I can see this being an infantile step towards I mean, they don't, peace. they don't really, they don't really explain it very well. That's, but yeah. my, my, I mean, again, I've only ever seen the movie twice. My conception of, of, of Nimbus 3 is that it is a planet in the neutral zone that borders, you know, Federation, yeah. Federation space, Klingon space, and Romulan space. And for whatever reason, the three powers came together, you know, to try. Yeah, I can see why. something and to try to develop. It a, would make sense for them to have a center of trade between a the colony three. Yeah. that they could go to if they were having issues, and they would all live together and see if they actually could get along. I think it's a fine idea. Yeah, I think as it's portrayed, I think it's ridiculous. I don't know why they chose Nimbus Three because Nimbus Three looks like a shithole. Yeah, and the Federation just wouldn't abandon people like that. It it, it just it fundamentally yeah. doesn't make any sense. And again, that's why I think the movie is so cynical. It 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 doesn't even it doesn't even not understand Star Trek. It sort of refuses to engage with it. It it, it Shatner is is trying to do something else entirely in the Star Trek milieu. Again, and it, it just made, doesn't work. As an unaffiliated sci-fi movie, I think it might have been a lot stronger. Like, this is one of those where I think the Star Trek brand hurts it. If it had just been about yeah. random alien speed. Again, it feels very Dune. It feels very, you know, if they had had just completely different. You, you can have an alien with the power to, you know, heal people psychically. And you don't have to fit it into what is our understanding of Vulcan powers, you know. You can have a character who is a Spock-ish character who suddenly has a half-brother he never talked about because, you know, we didn't have that history. Um, If this story had been given to characters with less baggage around them, maybe if this even had been in the Star Trek universe but a different crew, we might have even had a different thing. And I think the ending of the movie is interesting with the... Are they ambassadors? Are we going to call them ambassadors? Let's call them ambassadors. Yeah, they're supposed to be ambassadors. With the ambassadors, because they seem to imply that they've all gotten a new lease in life from this experience. They have, you know, the Klingon has finally learned his, you know, realized how to be a general again. And, you know, the Romulan and the Earth uh, guy, they're implying to be interested in each other and they're happy together. Sure, why not? The thing is, you know, so they're happy now, but it wasn't just their jadedness that caused, you know, Nimbus 3 to be a shithole. It's 
I doubt that they're a planet heavy in natural resources. I doubt that the people who are going to this planet are the richest and yeah. the most, you know, classiest of people. Like, this is just... The implication I got was this was supposed to be a place that was advertised as a really awesome place to visit, and the only people who got there were suckers, and now that they're there, they can't afford to go back, and so they're just living a shitty subsistence scrap life. And Star Trek is not a scavenger world. We've not really seen many scavenger worlds in Star Trek, and so, as you said, the Federation wouldn't leave people. Yeah, you're right. The Federation wouldn't leave people. Klingon and Romulan, I don't know, but... They may, they may not. Yeah. But the Federation wouldn't, right? Yeah. And I think that's the problem with it. <sighs> well, that was that was fun. You know, I there there is there is one other thing I will say in, in in slight defense of the movie, and then and then perhaps we can wrap this up. But you know this this was being filmed in 1988, and there was a Writers Guild of America strike in 1988. So that did cause some of these problems. The, the movie needed some more rewrites and it couldn't get them. Yeah. And so at the end of the day, this was probably the best version of this movie that we were going to get. It just would have been nicer if they'd waited a year, you know? Yeah. Well, the problem was they really couldn't. I know. You know, because The Voyage Home had come out three years earlier. So. Really? Yeah, The Voyage Home was huh. 86 and this was 89. So this was also the first uh, original series movie that was released and filmed at the same time that the next generation was on the air. Oh. So they wanted yeah. to get some of that sweet, sweet next gen money. Well, they use some of the same sets. Oh. They also one of the interesting things that I read, and I you know, I don't know how true this is, but you know, the first two seasons of the next generation, um, and, and when we start the next generation in, in, in two weeks, you'll start to get a handle on, you know, what exactly people are talking about when they talk about the first two seasons of the yeah. next generation. But now really quick, what was the reception of the first two like what was the were people watching the first two seasons? They were watching it, but they were not happy. Yeah. It's not a great show in the first two seasons. That's and what and I've heard. what what I heard is that Paramount wanted to get this movie out kind of to distract from how bad the, the next oh, generation was. God. And that was just not a good call on their part, if no, that is true. if they Voyage Home, yes. Okay, you would have totally, you know, that was a great movie. That yeah. would... I, I, this movie is so bad that I find it almost inconceivable that they greenlit a sixth one. I find it in, almost inconceivable that Next Generation continued after this. Like, this seemed, I, I think it's only skin of their teeth that the franchise survived and this killed Chatner's directing career probably right i don't know i well let i've me, never cared enough to find out let me but... put it this way we don't really know about any other movies that Chatner directed i i think that says it all <laughs> yeah yeah all right well what would you give this one? Oh god um i would give it two triples and hopefully they multiply and kill everybody in the movie zero next week we wrap up the original series for good. It's the last outing for this crew. I'm going to miss it. Star Trek VI, The Undiscovered Country. And it's a good way to go out. Okay. So we'll see you then. <laughs>